0: Good evening, everyone. It's good to have you all here. Pastor Tim Westermeyer here, the senior pastor of St. Philip the Deacon. It is my privilege to welcome you to the start of the 19th season of Faith and Life, and just as significantly to the first in-person Faith and Life event that we've done now for, what, 18 or 20 months. I was talking with some people a few minutes ago about the last in-person event we had. I think it was with Dr. Todd Warner in this space, so... Thank you for coming out. I know we have had a lot of people following us uh, in the last 18 months online, so to those of you who are watching uh, online, uh, welcome to you as well. We're delighted that you're joining us this evening. Um, I will tell you that uh, if you've not been to a Faith and Life event in the past, you'll hear from the speaker, and then there'll be an opportunity to ask questions, so please be thinking about those questions, um, and we'll have, uh, for those of you who are in the house here, we'll have a couple of mics. You can ask questions live from him. And those of you at home, uh, you can send us questions through social media or through email, and we'll figure out how to get them up to me so that I can ask him. Um, I'm also reminded that 19 years ago, when we began this, our very first speaker, actually, was a well-known journalist from the Twin Cities. He kicked off not only that year, but the entire uh, series of Faith in Life, and we're privileged now, 19 years later, to have another journalist joining us. Uh, Our speaker tonight has spent four decades uh, in journalism, And he has seen, as you can imagine, during that period, both through radio and TV and print, all kinds of major uh, stories. He's covered major stories during that period, everything from the attempted assassination of John Paul II uh, to the 9-11 attacks to um, historic broadcasts from South Africa after apartheid was concluded, also broadcasts from Ireland after the troubles there ended after decades of trouble. Um, One of the joys of coming back to do this in person for me is that I get to actually meet our speaker in person. I picked him up earlier uh, this afternoon from the airport, which gives me an opportunity to visit with him and chat with him. Um, And I asked him, as I always do when I have the opportunity, for any bits of biographical information that are sort of off the beaten path. uh, Among the things he shared with me were the fact that his daughter is also a uh, cleric, an Episcopal priest. She was actually married uh, last Saturday, so congratulations to her and to your whole family. He will also be heading to China um, in January to begin a teaching stint there. And the final thing I will say is that he was profoundly disappointed by the Yankees' loss a couple days ago (laughs) to the Red Sox. We are thrilled to welcome him tonight. Will you join me in welcoming Ray Suarez?
1: I'm out of practice. Thank you for bringing me out, and thank you for being with me tonight wherever you are, here or out there in the out there. After spending the last year and a half in the office down the hall from my bedroom, I was relieved instead this morning to take the subway to the airport, hump my luggage to check in, and sit on a plane for a few hours with a mask on. I was actually looking forward to it. It is a great pleasure to be with people again. And the nice thing about being asked to speak on this particular topic is that it forced me to think about it, which is fun too. You know, the, a lot of speakers have set topics, and this one made me consider the parameters of what I could tell you tonight. After more than 40 years, a lot of what I do for a living is from instinct and muscle memory. This question in an interview leads to this next question. This shot in a TV story follows this shot. This story comes ahead of this one in a newscast. It is born of habit and also from a philosophy of news. And it's all very subjective. None of it is written in stone. My work, like a lot of people's, is bound by customs and folkways what the ordination rite in my church calls a manner of life. We reporters, or less charitably, we human microphone stands, we ink-stained wretches, we ladies and gentlemen of the press, do have a manner of life. And I think after making my adult life this way, I can say without an ounce of self-pity uh, that a lot of the public, a lot of the time, doesn't think much of our manner of life. I always get a kick out of seeing the press scrum as it's depicted in movies because you're hiring a bunch of reporters, a a, a bunch of actors to act like what they think reporters act like. So there's sort of a a pack of howling jackals screaming questions at somebody. You've seen these movies. a defendant, a victim, a suspect, a politician, a cop. The questions reflect little intelligence or human decency. They reflect little curiosity. They are largely meant to get someone to embarrass or implicate themselves. And the mob is rarely satisfied with the answers or ready to be done when they get one. The fictional story in the movie, whatever the story is, is only a brick in the wall of someone trying to build a career for themselves, no matter what that quest may mean for other people and their lives. I must tell you that the scramble to meet deadlines, to file, and then to do it all again the next day has only gotten more frantic as the digital world has opened up a new set of masters to be served, a whole new set of beasts to be fed. While the number of offerings has expanded, the number of jobs has not. So fewer people are doing more work, even as the number of aspirants to full-time work in the business has expanded, thus bidding down the price of our labor. So if the movie actors acting like reporters seem a little crazy, I guess that part is accurate. There's a reason for that. But most days, on most stories, it's not really like that. Many days, a reporter is a solitary actor, a single organism floating in space, bumping up against other organisms. You spend a lot of time on the phone, or going over documents, or trying to get a chronology of events clear enough in your own head that you understand it well enough to turn around and explain it to somebody else. In the moment, you have to hold yourself to standards of ethics and decency, Because there is no angel or devil sitting on your shoulder whispering guidance in your ears. You've got to figure it out right there in the moment as you're moving along. Gut check, gut check, gut check, fairness, curiosity, thoroughness. You're constantly correcting in mid-course, a little shift here a little shift there. The vision of reporters in popular entertainment as amoral careerists going for a scoop no matter who gets hurt in the process, or in contrast, pitiless crusaders nailing to the wall someone who richly deserves it, those depictions don't really get, or at least I haven't felt they get, to who we really are. I should add a disclaimer. I don't know if what is true for me when I talk about the intersections between faith and vocation is true for every other journalist, any other journalist, some, many, I don't know. They may find their professional lives connect to their spiritual lives in ways very different from what I see when I look at my own life. While I accepted this invitation to speak to you on this topic with pleasure, I also approach it with a certain trepidation that goes right to the heart of what I'm talking about. In my professional life, a very high value is put on my lack of identification with any particular ideological orientation, any particular worldview, any particular identity, any particular set of values or beliefs that are used to test propositions that are put before me by a parade of, elected officials, cabinet secretaries, professors, think tankers, and so on. At the same time, I am a Christian man at a time of crisis for the sad old world and a time of crisis for the faith itself. From everything I've been taught over the years, that Christian profession is not supposed to be a secret. Quite the opposite. Not only is it not a secret in this post-Catacombs, post-Constantine world, but the hints and commands about how to handle it are strewn all over the culture. I love to tell the story of Jesus and his love. Why would you sing that? I love to tell the story. Will be my theme in glory. Through all the tumult and the strife, I hear that music ringing. It finds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? To be in the world, but not of the world. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Or, for fans of the old Book of Common Prayer, not only with our lips, but in our lives. So here I am, pulled in two very contradictory directions. Urged to be holy, urged to be righteous, and have it not be a secret, and to present to the world a kind of blank sheet of paper because of the work I do. Scriptures again and again call the Christian to be very much on one side or another, a sheep or a goat, to not even attempt the impossible task of serving two masters, lest you love one and come to hate the other. When it comes time to be counted on the great issues of the day, war and peace, poverty and wealth, who's my brother and sister and what responsibility do I have to them, the challenge is always there. How to reconcile those two tugs. How to do, in the words of the old prayer book, all such good works as has been prepared for us to walk in, while at the same time, spending a big chunk of the day being an effective, discerning, disinterested revealer of truth who doesn't expose his own beliefs. Not easy. And after more than 40 years in the business, and not quite 65 years in the church, I'm finally figuring out how essential that tension is to the person I became, and how complementary the tension between those two worlds can be, at least for me. When I was a teenager, I thought seriously about becoming a priest. I served at the altar, I read scripture as a lector, I sang in the choir, I thought I was a reasonably good public speaker, I loved to study and write, but since I wasn't sure I figured I shouldn't allow it to get much further than that. The idea of being a reporter fascinated me. I assumed a church vocation would be something that seized you, burned in an overt way like tongues of flame on your head at Pentecost, and that meant it simply could not be denied or turned away from, or it wasn't the real thing. If you could avoid it, it wasn't the real thing. So I backed away. I married a Jewish woman and I thought, this is all settled. <laughs> Unlike Jonah, I did make it all the way to Tarshish. But I think about that road not taken from time to time. On the other hand, I thought the news business would put money in my pocket, get me far beyond Brooklyn, give me a chance to see the world, watch the events that shaped the world's daily life, and talk to the people who make that daily life tick. So I plunged into a life in the news. Whether it's being transported by the roar of 100,000 people in a soccer stadium as Nelson Mandela raises his fist at the last rally before the polls open in South Africa's first free elections or the nasty tension of being on the wrong end of a police raid in Uzbekistan as I try to interview members of the political opposition, or bumping into the pope, I mean literally bumping into the pope as against the advice of his doctors, he checks himself out of the hospital after the attempt on his life, or being thrown to the ground by the force of a blast as a parked Mercedes is blown to bits as I stood with a crowd in Lesotho waiting for the king's limo to come by, He wasn't hurt, but a lot of other people were. It's been a life I've cherished, a life that's allowed me to be immersed in the joys and sorrows of the world up to my eye teeth and to live a life that makes me a perpetual student. But at the same time, the business has changed in ways I never could have imagined, presented me with compromises no one ever tells you about when you're working on your college newspaper and puts you now in the front lines of the culture wars. I didn't ask to be there, but there I am. And look at how much religion has been in the news in the past few years. School curricula, prayer, Supreme Court nominations, abortion, the so-called clash of civilizations in the post 9-11 period. There's this thing, and reporters and activists alike call it the faith and values vote. And as a Christian layman, I have to approach that term with a certain caution. Do the people who might even call themselves faith and values voters think that I might be one too? If they have faith and values and voted in one way, does that mean the people who didn't vote that way aren't faithful or don't share values? How do you even talk about this? in the America that we've got for ourselves today. That I agreed to come tonight is in part an outgrowth of a change of heart in recent years about the appropriateness of someone who does what I do for a living, talking in a public way about religious faith. When I was a kid growing up in an extremely religiously diverse environment, religion was by common consent something you were instructed not to talk about publicly except with people who already agreed with you. What did people say back then? Oh, religion and politics are not topics for polite conversation. But the whole trajectory of society since then has been to move almost 180 degrees away to a confessional culture, where we talk about little more than faith and politics. Where religion-tinged speech ends up in the most obvious and in the most obviously inappropriate places all the time. I lived through years where the culture blared Christmas at me starting at about Labor Day, and then turned on the television and heard politicians saying, you couldn't say Merry Christmas anymore. And I wondered if we were talking about the same country. For a long time, I recoiled from that confessional culture, figuring it was better if my own commitment and how it intersects with the rest of my life remained my own business. In large measure, because this job really is different. Unlike many people, I have spent years doing my daily work in front of millions of witnesses. It's an odd kind of exposure. I do my work having made an implied contract with the people who are watching and listening and reading, that I will try to give them a picture of the state of the world that is not pre-baked, that is not designed to push them to preordained conclusions. I don't want people to think I've got my thumb on the scale. So it follows that the less they know about me, the better, right? When I was working at the news hour, I got a letter from a man in Washington State who wrote. When I read a book, it interests me greatly to know as much as I can about the author. It seems only reasonable. I love when people write an unreasonable thing and preface it by saying it seems only reasonable. It seems only reasonable when the news hour promotes an author that they inform the viewers of his or her background. Where are they coming from? Everyone who writes a book has an agenda. You allow Beschloss to besmirch Roosevelt for his supposed lack of compassion for the Jews. Is Beschloss Jewish? See what I mean? For some news consumers, nothing can be taken at face value. Historian Michael Beschloss's analysis must be tinged in some way by this one man's perception that he is Jewish. One Ash Wednesday, I began early in the day by going to church and then headed to work. Editorial meeting, blah, 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 and I had uh, a cross of ashes on my forehead. My normal practice through all my years as a reporter was to have it on and then when it was time to get my face ready for the evening broadcast I would just wipe it off the makeup artist would put my makeup on and I'd go on but I did an interview earlier in the day and forgot that I had it on so I do this interview and there's something called the two shot the reverse and the reverse two shot over the interview subject's shoulder showed a very thoughtful, intelligent, concerned guy with a notepad in his hand with a ashen cross on his forehead. My editor turns around and says, should we use that? I said, well, uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, we don't have another shot, but second of all, um, it was what was really happening. It actually happened, so let's, you know, that's it. It's Ash Wednesday, that's that. Well then, I got letters at the news hour. And the interesting thing was, there were two kinds of letters. One from people overjoyed that I had made a public profession of faith that they were so encouraged to see, assuming, you know, that all reporters are infidels of some sort. they said, you know, I'm, I'm sure this was not an accident. Thank you for going on television with ashes on your head. And I thought, like, boy, are you wrong, but okay. And I also got letters saying, one guy wrote, how dare you? How dare you? I thought, wow, you're overreacting too. You may be as much as wrong as this other person, thinking what a great thing it is. But... There are people for you, huh? How dare you shove your religion in my face? Well, that was far from my intention, pal, but sorry you felt that way about it. The recipients of the messages we send, like the ground in the parable, can be welcoming or rocky or choked with weeds, perhaps as a function of age, perhaps as the advancing tide of not wanting to think about it anymore, perhaps from coming to the wisdom that if you want to twist my words or my appearance based on your judgment of who I am, that ends up not being my problem. That's really your problem. I've concluded that if you want to watch the news or read my articles trying to sift my words for their real meaning based on my status, I can't stop you. I am an Episcopalian. I'm a member of the governing body of Washington National Cathedral. I've been a Sunday school superintendent, a Sunday school teacher, a licensed lay reader, assisted celebrants at the altar from my early teens into my early 60s. The church is in me and I am in the church in a way that really can't be separated. You can't say he ends here and the church begins there. It just It's like someone putting sugar in your coffee and only then asking if you take sugar. There's no way to get it out of there. It's just in there. And should my work reflect that in some way? Should it reflect it in a way that means something to the reader, the listener, or the viewer? Along with being a Christian, I'm a parent, a husband in a religiously mixed marriage, I'm Puerto Rican, a homeowner. A public school parent, a taxpayer, a guy from Brooklyn, a lover of cities, a lover of baseball, a lover of opera. You can't pull those other things apart from who I am any more than these other variables. If you want to sit and listen to an interview and try to figure out where I'm at politically based on any or all of these variables, have at it, and good luck. From the angry and happy letters I've gotten over the years, people do listen to every word and assign them great significance as signals of a secret, biased soul. The next tough assignment is to figure out how to discuss these themes without succumbing to the sin of self-satisfaction, without sounding self-serving. All I can do is my job. I have to leave it to others whether I do it well, There's a perception, certainly among religious conservatives I've met over the years, that there are no religious people in newsrooms, which is a very flawed idea. There are few people who fly their religious concerns like a flag in newsrooms, but there's plenty of religious people. I think that perception that newsrooms are pagan dens or covens uh, comes in part from the correct observation that those of us in this work usually present the material in an arm's length way, neither supporting nor detracting from, not always affirming or denying the truth of what the people who talk to us say. When we present contradictory material, we hang it on others. It's attribution. One of the most frequently heard questions when you're listening to an experienced editor review the work of a young reporter is, Who says so? Who said this? Attribution becomes your permit to include a fact in your story. The answer is never, I say so. (laughs) A journalist can't say something's a fact merely because they believe it's true. Listeners hear that, readers read it and conclude, oh, well here's a person who doesn't really believe anything because they attribute everything that I believe, which of course is correct, to other people. Also, there's an understanding that a responsibility uh, to spread God's word in the world, an evangelical impulse that's very strong in America, is not something you want or hear in the work of journalists, and appropriately so. That breeds suspicion rather than understanding of our appropriate role, of our appropriate living out of our vocation. We are asked to set ourselves aside when describing, explaining, witnessing the events of a complex and sometimes frightening world. I come to this work with a sense of duty, of mission, of vocation that is in some ways similar. Certainly the Venn diagram overlaps with those who choose the religious life. These are both I think, when done well, not just jobs. They are whole ways of seeing the world. They are both, I think, jobs bound by abstracts, things that you can't touch, taste, smell, like authority and integrity and credibility. These are attributes that ask others to enter into a deal with you. Give me something really valuable. The priest and the journalist both say your trust. Since I cannot in every paragraph tell you again and again why I know something that I'm trying to tell you is true, at some point I have to hope that I have enough of a deposit of credibility with you that I can draw on it as you Listen to my report or read my article. I can't demand your trust. I can only ask for it and hope that I've got enough in the bank with you that you will give me your trust. I could not do the job the way I do without an interior structure provided for me by my Christian vocation. I'm asked every day to talk to people I don't know and will never meet, about some of the most serious challenges in our common life. I have to trust them to pay attention, to try to digest what I'm giving them, and then I have to do it all again tomorrow with no way of knowing whether what I did yesterday was really heard, if at all, by how many? What did they get out of the experience? It is an act of faith that's repeated again and again. For the most part, I have no way of knowing if anything I've done as a reporter has made any difference in anyone's life. Either the people who read or hear the stories or the people I'm covering. And yet I do the work out of the conviction that information is essential to the work of a free society and that the value of, the participation in, the work of democracy needs information in a way that our bodies need oxygen. We die without it. In that way, Just going to work every day is an act of faith. I've spent my whole life groping my way forward, trying to discern what God wants from me and what he wants from his creation. The gift of a mind that's not all made up has helped me in that journey, and I hope made me a better reporter at the same time. I can echo with confidence the young Mary, who exclaims in Luke, He who is mighty has done great things for me. Not as consequential in my case. I'm very clear about that. But he who is mighty has done great things for me. At the same time as I don't tip my hand about my private life, I'm striving to live out the very clear assignment Jesus gives us in Matthew. Come, O blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. I hear people call that a Matthew 25 Christian. I think that's a pretty good term a Matthew 25 Christian. A fact that the folkways and traditions of my chosen profession really don't encourage me to talk about Jesus's clear command, challenges me instead to think a lot more about doing these things, rather than how to talk about them. And where I live in Washington, where saying something is routinely mistaken for doing that thing, that's a very good trait. One difficulty comes from trying to square the reporter's orientation to the world. A reporter has a certain orientation, a certain expected orientation to the world, skeptical, suspicious of the motives of others, grappling with the credibility of others. And the Christian's orientation toward that same world, a world where sharp talk, trying to trip people up with tricky questions, is not prized and praised. At the legendary City News Bureau in Chicago, a reporter's training program that has rolled out generations of journalists, there's a motto, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. (laughs) Compare that worldview with the desire, the powerful hope of St. Bonaventure who prays, be thou alone ever my hope, my entire confidence, my riches, my delight, my pleasure, my joy, my rest and tranquility, my peace, my sweetness, my food, my refreshment, my refuge, my help, in whom may my mind and heart be ever fixed and firm and rooted immovably. A world-weary reporter might hear that and call back to the office and say, look, I talked to that guy Bonaventure, not a credible source, He's totally drunk the Kool-Aid. Another way that faith informs vocation for me is in my dealing with the rest of the world. As a reporter, I'm constantly faced with meeting a wide slice of the human family, asking them questions, sifting their answers, having the answers inform the way I tell their story to the people who don't know them, have never laid laid eyes on them. was an even more profound responsibility in my days in local news and my time as a daily deadline street reporter. But the essentials are always the same. Who are these people to me? Once they agree to talk to me, what do I owe them? Presidents, welfare recipients, prime ministers, Gang boys, cardinals, intravenous drug users, ward bosses, construction workers, academics, a little bit of everybody. Am I using them as stage decoration, as props for my world, the world that I present to my listeners and readers? Am I taking into account their own willingness to be used? Are they fully informed about the nature of the deal we're making if they agree to talk to me? When I turn the camera on them, am I giving poor people the same privilege of self-protection and self-definition that I might give to wealthy or powerful people? Do their personal stories belong to me in some sense? Are they mine to do with what I choose? These are some of the naughtiest problems a reporter faces in the field. Call it, if you will, the ethics of self-presentation, granting the privilege of equal dignity to the people we interview. The way my faith asks me to be in the world and not of the world can't help but guide my behavior professionally. And it forces me to constantly consider the treatment and the personal sovereignty of the people I run into in my work it would be easier to write people off as dumb and poor and sick and suck out of them what I need from them and move on. It might be a better career move to curry favor with people at the other end of the continuum, give them better treatment because they're somehow better. But I can't do that. My respect for, my empathy for, the kind of people who aren't welcoming my camera and its pitiless gaze into their lives, they deserve kindness and care every bit as a person who calls me because they want me to interview them. I have to protect those people in a way that's different from the people who enter into a transaction with me trying to get something out of me a leg up on their rivals, a shot at my audience, more free publicity for their book, that strong feeling of obligation to protect people who are vulnerable to the whims of those with more money, more clout, more influence is, I hope, seen in a small way in my work and isn't lost on the people who work with me. Mine is a viciously competitive business, both inside one organization and between organizations. It would be easy enough to work by the standards of my business rather than the standards of my faith when it comes to calibrating a moral compass, knowing how to live within a system that can reward the kind of attitudes and behavior that I'm always trying to get rid of in myself. In other words, does it make more sense For me to pursue advancement, status, money, authority within the moral structure of my business or stubbornly stick to the person I want to be the rest of the time when I'm not at work, whatever it costs me. And don't get me wrong, this is not a woe is me moment. I've had a fair amount of success in my career. I can calmly consider the fact that my own advancement inside the system has been limited by my resistance to the kind of single-minded ambition and lack of care for others that I think borders on the sinful. I credit my religious upbringing with giving me a sure anchor during crisis times in my business and crisis times in the life of the communities that I've covered. I get to routinely see people at their best, their most noble and decent, and see them at their worst. You see the bad stuff, the famines, the murder victims, the fraud trials, looting, riots, flood and tornado ravaged towns, the sufferings of the people you cover, and the private amazement that you take away from those encounters of the great and sustaining faith that they so often have. When put to the test in some way, would my faith be as strong? I hope so. In 2001, there was the breathtaking enormity of Ground Zero in Lower Manhattan, where I spent the first two weeks after September 11th. The images you see today, maybe you've had a chance to travel there in the intervening years of a clean, orderly place, no longer has the power to conjure that vast scene of devastation, smoking, stinking ruins. The ruins were 20 stories high. We look at these things, we talk to the people whose lives are altered by these events, and frankly, in ways on many of us who do the work, we're insiders and outsiders at the very same time. And I guess it's assumed that if we do our jobs the way we're supposed to, from that celebrated arm's length remove, those experiences shouldn't reach us, right? Nothing could be further from the truth. I have to check my moral temperature, check my ethical pulse. Does what I'm doing right now put me on the side of increasing the amount of goodness in the world? Can I be aggressive and elbows out in my pursuit of greater reputation, more money for the security of my family, seek to gather more points in the eyes of my bosses and my colleagues, and still, after all that, be true to who I'm supposed to be? There are any number of jobs where the intersection of faith and vocation might be less complicated. Do I mention the next time it comes up in an interview that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, but talked about poverty 400 times? Can I ask that without getting banged for bias? Maybe I've got to compartmentalize a little more and remain a paid skeptic just from 9 to 5 or 10 to 6. I have a more plausible hope in the unseen than a faith that either party is really going to cut the federal deficit in the next five years. That would take something more on a sort of Job level of faith, (laughs) which I'm not sure at this moment I'm capable of. A small, neat irony of the reporter's life in an age of conflict and division, a time in which religion is often used as a social force that illustrates, demarcates, The splits and tears in our national garment rather than healing them. One place where critical distance is handy is when I, from time to time, have been called to cover and explain religious topics. My absolute rock-solid belief in spiritual autonomy in community lets me listen to what my private self might consider really wacky ideas that fly under the cover of religion in America today. But I back off a bit, not in a way that distorts the story, mistells what people believe, express what they tell me, but rather it allows me to depress my clutch, quietly slip into another gear. I ask probing questions, push back a bit, have people defend their theses, but I will not argue with them. I will not be a bully. I will not get into an argument with people over what in my private, away-from-the-mic moments, I might consider mistaken belief. When someone tells me their religion teaches them not to take a COVID vaccine, I am duty-bound to ask why, to press for a good answer as to why, but I am not called to tell them that they are wrong. It can, like so much of a life in the news, require a duality, a twoness, a kind of split consciousness. But after all these decades of pulling it off, it is, after all, second nature. Thank you very much for having me with you, and I welcome your questions.
0: And we will give you a chance to ask those questions in a moment. I'm going to let Ray rest his voice uh, while I make a couple of announcements. Uh, The first is, as those of you who are here will see in your program, the next event uh, is November 4th. It will feature Vicki Elliott. Vicki is the executive director of a local nonprofit um, called Mental Health Connect uh, that focuses on helping churches Uh, better deal with mental health issues in their communities. So we hope you'll join us for that. Uh, Sign up to social media or our email uh, list if you would like to be alerted to future events um, like that one. But again, November 4th, again, here in the sanctuary and, again, also online. Um, I want to say a few, well, actually, before I say the thank yous. those of you who are members of St. Philip Deacon will recognize uh, this is our quarterly magazine, Inspire, this is the current issue on AWE, A-W-E, uh, from the fall. Uh, we have extra copies in the Narthex. Uh, those of you who would like to pick one up, feel free to do that. Those of you online who would like to get a copy, if you could email us, we are happy to send you one. I mentioned this specifically because there's an interview in it uh, with Ray Suarez, as well as an essay he wrote uh, on the subject of AWE. Uh, Speaking of printed things, there is also a copy, or actually a handful of copies, I'm not sure how many we have left, of his book. He's written a number of books. This one is Latino Americans, The 500-Year Legacy That Shaped a Nation. Uh, If you would like one of those, we're going to be really bad business people tonight. Just on the honor system, just leave us 20 bucks in one of the baskets out there and pick it up. Ray will be at the table. He can inscribe it for you. Uh, This happens to be the middle of uh, Latino Hispanic Heritage Month, which runs from the 15th of September to the 15th of October. That's not a joke. He can explain it maybe better than I can. <laughs> um, and that, it's a companion book to a, a program that's actually being shown on PBS, and I believe you said... Uh, yeah. right this time of year, yeah. I, I, every Prime local too? station is showing it at a different times, so okay. I can't tell. Anyway. Check your local listings. There you go. Perfect. <laughs> that. Uh, anyway, pick up that book if you'd like. Um, and then I want to thank uh, Jeff, Jeff Elstad, our guitarist. Thanks. It's great to see you again after all this time. Um, I also want to thank, one of the questions I get most frequently after doing this for 19 years is, where do you get the ideas for these speakers? Um, and sometimes there's not a clear answer to that. In tonight's case, there is. And I actually grew up listening to Ray on the News Hour. I'm from Chicago. He spent some time there. And I'm a big fan. When I picked him up at the airport, he actually called me on, on my phone to coordinate where we were going to meet. And I was like, "Wow, I recognize that voice." So um, I could have thought of it on his own on my own. However, in the case of, of this e- evening's event, I've gotten to know a gentleman named Scott Gunn, GUNN, who runs. Uh, sort of para-ministry of the Episcopal Church, sort of a publishing house of the Episcopal Church. He's the executive director of it. Um, And uh, they do some wonderful things. Anyway, in one conversation, uh, I asked him, hey, do you have any ideas about uh, speakers? And he immediately thought of Ray so Scott I think you may be watching tonight if you're not maybe watching later than this I want to say special thanks to you for the suggestion so thank you Scott very much and then finally a word of thanks uh, from the beginning we intended that these events would always be free and open to the public um, and we've had wonderful crowds over the years I will tell you during COVID one of the strange things about technology is that it turns out you don't need parking spots or pew seats uh, on the internet. And our events grew tremendously during COVID through virtually uh, virtual attendees. Um, and everyone who is able to come to these, whether online or in person, has always been able to do it Free without any charge, and that's as a result of the incredible generosity of countless individuals and area corporations who underwrite these events. Many of the people who represent those corporations or those in- individuals are here tonight in person or online. Will you join me in thanking them for their generosity? And I think that's all I have to say for now. So we're going to turn it over. I I do have some questions from folks online, but if uh, there are people in the house here who have some questions, you can go to the mic there or the mic over there. Um, And as someone who moderates these things said once, please make sure your question ends with the appropriate punctuation mark, which is a way of saying, don't make a speech, ask a question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're letting people in the hall
1: ask their questions first because You risked life and limb to come out here tonight. So (laughs) you you get to go ahead of the people online. Anybody have any questions? All right, so I guess we go to the online.
0: All right. Um, You touched on this, actually this is a huge part of your talk, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Um, Is it even possible for a journalist to sustain objectivity? wouldn't it be better to state one's bias, inclination? Question mark. <laughs> no, it wouldn't be better.
1: No, I, 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 guess, I guess the person wants a more expansive answer than that. Um, when you watch the news, ideally, granted, this is in my old school way of seeing it, ideally. You should be able to either read a newspaper article or listen to uh, MPR tomorrow morning or, or watch TV news. And if someone tells you this happened, this happened and this happened, you can take that information, synthesize it with the information you've already got on board from living your life and come to some conclusions about the state of the world and do the work of being a citizen. Unfortunately, in our modern media environment, we have encouraged the growth of news organizations that don't tell you all 360 degrees of the things that you need to know in order to do the work of being a citizen, but instead um, tell you very specific Uh, parts of a story in order to drive you to certain conclusions, or much worse, um, don't even tell you anything resembling the truth. Those are the the scary ones, but I'm hoping that eventually they will be flushed out of the marketplace. Maybe not, I I don't know. People um, have shown uh, in the last nine months to a year that they are not repelled by being lied to. Uh, as long as the lies uh, conform with a desired view of the world as they want it to be. This, of course, is uh, you know, a death blow to people who do what I do. It's really hard finding stuff out. It's really hard finding out the actual facts and making, understanding how to take 25 other facts and then tell them in an order that allows someone to understand what you've come to understand from doing days of work. That's hard. It's much easier to just have an opinion. (laughs) And for our bosses, it's also much cheaper. (laughs) Maybe it would help if you thought about the economics of the business as much as the technology and as much as the ideology. Part of what has made opinion news so appealing is that often it involves nothing more than one camera looking at one mug of one person wearing a microphone just saying stuff. That is easy and it's cheap. And unfortunately, that has become all too much of the content that is available to listeners and viewers and readers now. It is harder to be a discerning consumer of news than it was uh, when I first got into the business where most outlets were in fact working diligently. And I, can, I really I, I want you to understand this. Most outlets were working diligently to present a set of facts that would allow you to build a coherent picture of the world and understand the place that you lived in. Unfortunately, along with the cratering of faith in all other institutions in society, the judicial system, the police, the academy, elected officials, All these other institutions and, critically, the church. If you take a look, helpfully Gallup, very prominent Episcopal layman, by the way, asked people about their faith in institutions, some a great deal, not at all, over the course of 60 years. So you get data from that. When you ask the same question every year for 60 years, you get great data because you can actually plot out trends in people's faith in institutions. After Watergate and the Vietnam War, the departure of Richard Nixon, the faith in what the big voices in the culture was telling us began to crater. It didn't just happen to the news business. It happened to college professors and doctors and judges and politicians, too, and priests and bishops. Cratered. So we're now trying to be heard and trying to insist to the audience that it really can trust what we say at a time when a lot of Americans aren't ready to trust what anybody says. If you're willing to take Ivermectin and not willing to believe that a Pfizer vaccine helps you, then that's an outgrowth of that lack of trust. You say, no, no. I got my doctorate online, where'd you get yours? I got my doctorate on Google, where'd you get yours? Yes, I know the FDA, the FDA. I know they've screened this thing and they say it's okay. I'm actually going to go to a veterinary pharmacy and buy medicine for animals and take that because I've heard where I got my doctorate at Google that that works, but this other thing doesn't work. That's where we're at right now. It's the cratering of the faith in institutions, and it's having all kinds of unpredictable, unforeseen uh, effects on the way our
0: world, our country, runs from day to day. Okay, I will continue. Please do. Again, there are microphones here. People, Maybe know. a question will occur to someone Perhaps. as we talk. All right, um, Americans do not. Again, I'm reading these questions uh, verbatim. Americans do not seem to really care about each other very much, at least not in any self-sacrificial manner. Why do you think this is? What does that kind of care for the other demand of us, not only as individuals but also as communities and a nation?
1: Well, you know, I think before the pandemic, I might have said that we did care for each other a little bit more than I think we've shown over the past couple of months. It's been a very distressing thing to watch our behavior as a people over these last um, 14, 16, 18 months. Well, um, people who are afraid people who are unsure uh, tend to be less generous, tend to be less sympathetic, and I think tend to be less empathetic, because they're worried. They're worried about their kids, they're worried about their jobs, they're worried about their retirement savings, they're worried about whether they're gonna be able to manage to somehow pay off their college loans Uh, They worry whether their children will ever be able to have a decent life. They're worried about a lot of things. And into that state of mind uh, comes the challenges of this part of the 21st century. And we are not reacting in an open-hearted, generous way, but in the way that frightened people react. When a thousand Haitians show up at the border of a country of 330 million people. I'll say that again. A thousand Haitians standing at the border of a country the size of a continent with 330 million people. We recoil and act as if we're being invaded. Those thousand Haitians would disappear into the maw of most American cities. We wouldn't even know they were there. We wouldn't even know they were here if they were pouring out of a shopping mall or walking into a a supermarket. I realize that we can't let everybody in the world who wants to come here come here, but uh, we are showing just how frightened we are when we overreact to events like that, that are in part an outgrowth of everything that's happening in a very crisis-ridden time in the rest of the world. We have unfortunately been trained to think that crises are things that happen over there, or over there, and we think they're not supposed to happen here. We really, think about it, Americans really think Bad things happen elsewhere to other people and not to us. And from time to time, the world intrudes, and the bad things that are happening in other places in the world shatter our complacency, shatter the calm and uh, orderliness of our lives. And that's what's happening now at the southern border. Of course, it's something we can handle. We're a big rich, powerful country, we can handle this. We've handled much bigger crises. So you have to ask yourself, in whose interest is it to portray this as some terrible, insuperable challenge that we can't
0: handle? Okay. I... Sorry? Oh, you want to ask? Okay. I do. I have a handful more, but that's fine. Go ahead. Um, I am an optimist, I guess. I'll start with that. And
1: knowing you have interviewed and been around so many wonderful and maybe not so wonderful people, can you share a story of joy or someone who surprised you or someone who just gave you some awe-inspiring outlook on your life? Uh, there have been a couple of people I've met while covering the end of apartheid, who I came away in awe of, because of their willingness to forgive, their willingness to uh, open their hand to others. One guy, his name is Joe Slovo. Joe Slovo was one of the leaders of the South African Communist Party. I don't share his politics particularly, but I did think that a free country should allow a Joe Slovo to just make his argument and it either would be accepted or rejected. But that's not what South Africa did. It harassed the man, it sent him into exile, it tried to kill him on several occasions. And he became the Minister of Housing in the first post-apartheid government. And I got to meet Joe Slovo, I was sitting in his backyard, in his house in Johannesburg. And here's a guy who had spent much of his life on the run, harassed and chased by the Bureau of State Security of South Africa. He had lost much of his adult life, some members of his family, to political murder and political violence, He had had to live in exile and he was as at peace, as convinced that that it had all been worth it. And I thought of the greatness of spirit that it would take to reach that state of being. We were sitting, the birds were chirping in the trees in his backyard guy who had had to uh, really run all over the world to stay one step ahead of South Africa's secret police. And I thought, well, maybe this country's gonna be all right because guys like this have managed to reach this place where instead of wanting to settle scores or make people admit what they had done to him or hunt down their enemies, this was as serene a man as I could have imagined, meeting. And you come away with uh, just being stunned by their generosity. Uh, Similarly, one of the authors of the South African Constitution, uh, his name is Albie Sachs, when you meet him, you realize as you shake his hand that he's missing several fingers. He's also missing an eye. His car was booby-trapped, and when he went to open his door, it blew up. He lost his eye and half his hand. He didn't decide that that was it, that he was washing his hands of his country, that he would leave it to its own devices. He came back, he helped write the Constitution, he helped set the country on its feet and again, um, you just think after all this loss, after all this suffering, after all this pain, this guy was able to look at his countrymen, even the ones who had jailed his friends, who had tortured his allies in the struggle, who had kept him out of his country for much of his adult life. And it gave me a lot of hope about the possibility of the future. Um, And I meet people in all kinds of back end of nowhere places, quietly doing their work. uh, Work that would be well paid and celebrated elsewhere in the world and no one even knows where they are or what they're doing. And I think, thank God you're there. Because if it was up to me, would I do it? Would I have what it takes to do this? Uh, so the, it, it's, I'm constantly reminded of just how lucky I've been to meet these people and see them in their place, doing their thing, um, showing the grace and the kindness and the spirit and the compassion that they do. Uh, the remarkable things I've seen, and the people I've met. And, you know, it, it's also, it sort of neutralizes, it's like an antacid, it, it neutralizes the venality and the cynicism that you see in a lot of other uh, lives of public people. So uh, you come away with a much better view of human nature and of humanity uh, because of those people. And I thank God I've met as many of them as I have.
0: Okay. Um, In the interview you did for the magazine I mentioned earlier, Inspire magazine, you mentioned that news organizations don't pour into journalists in the same way they used to, mentoring or teaching young journalists and shaping them as reporters. Did you have that kind of mentorship? Uh, Who inspired or mentored you? And do you pay it forward in mentoring younger journalists? What does that look like in today's news environment?
1: Um... I don't want to sound like a bad guy or a woe is me guy because I'm not, but um, coming up in the business when I did, when there were very few Latinos working in the news business um, and very few working at uh, high profile places, uh, there was no one ahead of me on the track that I could look to or few people ahead of me on the track that I could look to and say, there's my model, there's my trailblazer, there's the person who I'm following. Um, it is a p- constant problem, uh, the underrepresentation of minority journalists in the business, and it's not for them, uh, for a lack of them trying to get in. Uh, the business has not done as well as it could have, or not done as well as it should have, in cultivating. Uh, black and brown reporters and editors and producers and news directors and all the other uh, jobs in a, in a news organization. So I, I've had a few people along the way, but too few who were looking out for me. Uh, and I have tried to be that for other people whenever possible. But it, I'll say this, it's hard to diversify a shrinking business. Mm. Uh, it is hard when you're trying to do the right thing at the front door uh, to change who's already in the parlor. Yes, by attrition and by retirement and by gradual change over time, but you can't have absolute growth in the headcount in a lot of places. All the pressure is in the other direction. So you've got to um, do what you can when you can. Uh, The pipeline problem that we had in the 60s and 70s is no longer the kind of problem that it was. Too few black and Latino kids finished high school, and therefore too few went on to college, and too few therefore finished college. So you were getting to the pointy end of the pyramid at that point, and it was tough. Now that is not the problem. We've got to do better, and I do what I can, when I can, to help cultivate young talent and, and bring people along. But Not easy.
0: Okay. Um, We have a few questions that are sort of similar, so maybe what I'll do is gather these up into a single final question, unless anyone here would like to ask something else. Um, So one of them is talking about comparing and contrasting uh, media, say, from 35 years ago with media today. noting that the new media is more obsessed with clickbait titles and traffic, uh, invoking emotional responses from viewers. Uh, do you notice that shift as well? Um, maybe I'll, I'll, let me ask that one and then I'll ask the other two. Is, does that, was that clear, that question kind of? Uh, the news business has been buffeted
1: by economic change technological change and audience change, all at the same time. It's trying to rebuild its business model while it's still putting out a paper, putting out tonight's news, putting out tomorrow morning's morning edition. It's like trying to rebuild a jet at cruising altitude. You're flying over the continent and you're trying to work on the engine and check that the wings are attached and all that. It's really impossible. Yet here we are, I mean, Um, Craigslist has eaten away at the profits of American newspapers by destroying the steady revenue that came from classified advertising. Uh, It has, you know, And should we tell Craig Newmark not to invent Craigslist? No, I mean, this is the kind of thing that happens. Disruptive developments happen that upset the apple cart, but... There was no new industry to come rolling in to replace all that ad lineage. Afternoon newspapers were killed by commuting. Thank God you can't read a newspaper while you're driving. Some people may try, too few did. So afternoon newspapers headed for the graveyard helped along by early news. Those of you who are older in the audience, and I'm not looking at anybody in particular, (laughs) may remember that the network news was 15 minutes long. The network news was 15 minutes long and local news was a half an hour. Now it's hour after hour after hour of news that has undone some of the plans we made when I was young in the business. My bosses back in the 80s used to assure me that as the number of college-educated people went up, so would our place was secure because more educated people with more of a stake in the society are more news-dependent. And that much is true, yet... When college moved from being an elite experience to being a mass experience, with now roughly 33% of all Americans over 25 having a four-year degree, our audiences did not grow on that same trend line because people are distracted. They're all over the place. It was to me, when I was a young guy, the mark of an adult to read a newspaper. You couldn't think of someone as a serious adult who didn't know what was going on, right? I mean, if something really big happened locally and it came as news to somebody, you'd think, you know, what what is this person not paying attention to? What what is this? Now, being clueless is totally okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I don't... Maybe well, maybe I do mean it the way it came out. But what I mean is that, what I mean is that, you can sort of pick things up from the atmosphere in a way that you wouldn't have been assumed to be able to pick them up before. So if you just listen to the morning zoo on the way into work, Big Z one o three in the morning zoo. And you hear some, you know, they're joking about something that they saw in the news last night. That's good enough. You got enough to get you through the work day. because you heard like this little bits and snatch about this big thing that's happening. See, you you're not totally out of it. You are. You don't <laughs> think you are. But now a much larger fraction of the population goes without any news at all or goes episodically without any news at all. And I would argue that knowing what the hell is going on is even more critical now the world's a much more complicated place than it was 60 years ago it really is Uh, we've moved from a a Ptolemaic universe to a Copernican one uh, and yet we have not um, upped our game you know the world was in its disorder orderly in its disorder, the cold war sort of cleaved the world in two. We had allies, we had enemies, we knew who they were, we knew why they were our allies or our enemies. I mean, there was a sort of cynicism that underlay it all, but still, it was there. I mean, it's not for nothing that um, John Foster Dulles is, is uh, legendarily, perhaps uh, anecdotally, apocryphally, said to have said of a South American leader, well, he may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. There was a sort of real politic that kept the whole big clanking machinery of the world going. The world's more complicated today than it was back then in a lot of ways. Yet, I mean, there are significantly more countries. If you watch a documentary on the Olympics, the games in Melbourne or Paris in 1948, and they have the the procession and the countries come in, you think, that's it? (laughs) Like, 40 countries, that's it? Like, aren't there more countries? No. There's all these countries now with Olympic teams and flags and capitals and people you gotta know. Well, as the world became more complicated, our willingness to put in the work to understand its complications seem to have waned. And that is a dangerous situation because then that means you rely on the person with the loudest voice in the room to make the world simple for you. And that gets us into bad places. The news business is more vital than it's ever been and more in danger than it's been since the 19th century. We might be on the verge of going back to a 19th century model where only wealthy people read newspapers. Newspapers were really expensive, had almost no ads, and only wealthy and educated people read them. The Internet has done amazing things to democratize access to eyeballs and eardrums. Remarkable. If you showed up at WCCO with some hot video and said, I would like to go on your evening news tonight and show my hot video, they would tell you to get lost. Well, they may not now. They may be so desperate for content, maybe they won't tell you to get lost. But, but for most of my career, they would have simply told you to get lost, or where I worked in Chicago, or where I worked in New York. They would just say, you know, they'd try to find out what it was so they could go do the same story, but they wouldn't take it from you, because who are you? It was a narrow doorway to get on television, a narrow doorway to get on the radio. You couldn't present yourself at a radio station and say, here I am, I'd like to tell my story. So the internet, by being limitlessly available, there is no end to the newsprint of the internet. There is no end to the newscast after 30 minutes of the internet. It's limitless. It's access to it is limitless. Its ability to zip around the world is limitless. The ability for people to show things to each other is limitless. And the ability to lie is limitless. And we have not made our filter fine-tuned enough because our filters were developed at a time when vetted sources were the ones that we relied on. In fact, WCCO showed you something and you had a reasonable faith that it was real. You didn't think somebody made it up. Somebody went out and synthesized something that didn't really happen, to show you events that didn't really happen. So there was a sort of setup of limited access elite gatekeepers and high trust to now limitless access, limitless possibility for people around the world to see what you're doing, and low trust. And that's a very,
0: very dangerous place to be, and that's where we're at right now. So final question is related to trust, and it's I'm collapsing too, but how do you identify or discern truth, and what sources do you trust, then, for true information today? And after he finishes this, don't applaud wildly, because I'm gonna come and give him a gift, and then you can applaud wildly. (laughs) Don't applaud. Uh, I have what I
1: think is a fairly broad media diet. Um... I read endlessly. I mean, I just read nonstop because I'm trying to figure out a lot of things. I'm also writing another book, which will come out in 2023, and I'll come back and you'll all buy it. (laughs) Uh, It's on modern immigration. The United States completely rewrote its immigration laws in 1965. They took effect in 1968, and that rewrite of the law is giving us the country of the 2020 census, of stunning diversity, of unimaginable diversity, that you, you couldn't... When we were passing that law, Lyndon Johnson told reluctant Southern senators, who in those days were all Democrats, don't worry, this isn't really going to change that much. <laughs> well, the reason why in 2045, for the first time ever since 1776, the United States will have a plurality of European descended people rather than a majority is because that law changed, the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act.
0: It's gonna be a good book. (laughs) Anyway,
1: what was the question again?
0: Um, Um, Something about what do you trust. Yes,
1: there are, There are journalists doing, and for all my dreary thoughts about the business, I should tell you that this is, you know, appropriately Dickensian. It's the worst of times, but it is also the best of times. Fantastic work is being done. But it's tougher for news institutions to sustain reporters to do the kind of work that ends up in some of these explosive, phenomenal reports. Uh, So not a lot of news organizations can allow somebody to not be in the paper for six weeks while they work on a story. Not a lot of news organizations can take a correspondent off the air for two months to work on an investigation. That's becoming a luxury, and more of that kind of work is being sustained by philanthropic, not-for-profit news organizations like ProPublica, and the um, Center for Public Integrity. That some of the most profitable communications companies in the world take money from not-for-profits to subsidize their reporting is crazy, but it just shows you where we're at. There's plenty of great work being done now. Uh, My buddy and my church buddy David Fahrenthold of the Washington Post, who won a Pulitzer for um, his reporting on the Trump business empire, uh, is an example of diligent, dogged, and fact-based reporting. He's fabulous. David Fahrenthold, wonderful guy and a terrific reporter. And the Washington Post, a place that was Flagging in profits and circulation. Jeff Bezos bought the paper famously, and people said, uh oh, you know, what's going to happen now? Well, he's put a lot of money into the newspaper. Cynics say, well, yeah, but they're probably not going to cover Amazon that aggressively now. They are doing tremendous work helping readers understand how America works. In 2021, they have done tremendous work. They are no longer laying off reporters. They're hiring reporters. They're starting new beats. So, you know, I might cringe a little bit when I look at my Whole Foods bill, but, you know, if it hires another reporter at the Washington Post, I, can, I guess I can deal with it. You know? But there's, there's a lot of great work being done right now. I'm an avid reader and have been since I was 21 years old, of The Economist, which is one of the, the most outstanding news publications in the English language on the planet.
0: All right. I'm going to get up now. Ray is going to stick around in the back there. Um, I'm going to come up here now and let you applaud wildly in a moment. Um, <laughs> so first let me say to all of you, again, thank you for coming out for the relaunch of this new normal. Our you first were the brave event. ones. That's right. The first event post-COVID. So thanks for coming out. Thank you to those of you who are online for joining us online. And Ray, we are just delighted that you were able to be with us. So thank we're you. going to give you a little plaque. It says, with thanks to Ray Suarez for bringing faith to life. We thank you thank so you very, very, very much. much. Yeah, you're Now you're